It's certainly good to be back with you today. We're certainly thankful and appreciative for the opportunity that you allowed us to in terms of the meeting at the Free Will Congregation. We're certainly delighted and thankful for the various men who filled in here and did such a tremendous job in doing so. Thankful for Brother Trail as he brought the lesson last Lord's Day morning. As that particular lesson involved the truth of God, what a powerful and penetrating lesson we each can keep thoroughly in mind as we consider the truth that God has revealed to us and the nature of the embodiment of that truth. As my family and I are thankful to be back with you this morning, we're always certainly thankful for our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. The opportunity that we have to come together as both precious servants of God and those indeed of like precious faith. Certainly as we're mindful of those upcoming events, the singing next Lord's Day and then the meeting with McClellan Avenue on that Wednesday evening of that same week, what an honorable matter for them no doubt as they in essence begin the appreciation of their new building and do so with a gospel meeting and we're honored to be a part of that and the opportunity that God gives us to share Christian unity with, the, with even them. As you perhaps also can give thought to the lesson this morning, our lesson is simply entitled, The Bible Teacher. And you might give thought to the text that was just read for us a few moments ago by Joy from 1, Peter, from 1 Timothy chapter 4. In just a moment as we give a thought to some of the characteristics of that passage, it will be in fact a matter of great import to each of us as we think about the nature of what the Christian teacher, the Bible teacher really is. And I think as we study our lesson today, we of course perhaps can start like this. Teaching is such a basic part of what we understand in the world about us. In the family, we teach our children. In schools, there are those who are professional teachers. In other ways, we all are teachers of the Bible in one way or another. By way of example, by way of our verbal words that we employ, teaching is such an important part of what God asks and demands of each of us. I would hope this morning as we give thought to what's involved in teaching the Bible, certainly as we give thought to the lesson, all of us in a sense are called upon to teach in the way God has allowed us to within the sphere of activity. There are those, however, who stand before us and teach in a public way, be it as sermons, be it from our Bible classes. All of these, of course, have a special set of considerations and let's devote our time today to thinking about the Bible teacher. And all of us can fit into that in the way that would find its acceptance in the Word of God. To begin, perhaps we should do the following. Namely, giving thought to the place found in the sacred scriptures that teaching holds. Each of us, I'm sure, would readily agree that teaching is a very vital part of what God sets forth in His sacred and divine Word. Weren't those marching orders that Jesus, in fact, presented to those apostles after His own resurrection? He said in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, "...all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." Jesus, of course, in a very few days was going to ascend back to heaven. And yet He commissioned those apostles in such a way that they would understand first that all power had been given unto Him. And then with that power He commissioned them to go to all nations and teach them. 
as a result of that, hopefully there will be many to be baptized. But then he said, teach them some more, that they might observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching is such a vital activity. Those, of course, that are not Christians need to be taught something. And clearly it is the greatness of the Word of God that they might in urgency come to realize their sad and lost state. Mark's version of that in Mark 16, beginning in verse 15, we find the word preach is employed, and it rings in words like this, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The hope and the earnestness that each of us have, that those whom we may teach might hear with an element of response, correct response, in the sense of ultimately, of course, being baptized into Christ. The element of teaching and the characteristic of it perhaps leads us then to this observation. Here we find that God has made a statement, a commandment that teaching is to be done. There is no work that God has commanded for which He has not equipped His servants to carry out that work. God doesn't command something, but not equip those so that that work can be carried out. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, we find a listing, an inspired listing, of various works, shall we say, in that early church, some of which continue to our day. He hath given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and pastors and teachers. We can thus be thankful, appreciative of the role that the teacher occupies in the carrying out of the wonderful work of God. Teaching is a vital activity, isn't it? Ranked up there in that listing with those that would be prophets, ranked there with those that would be called evangelists, ranked there with those that we would recognize filling the office of apostle. Teachers were vital then and they continue to be so, don't they? The characteristic of teaching reminds us maybe of its importance as exemplified in the very words of Jesus Himself in Luke the fourth chapter. You might recall the setting. Jesus had been involved in such a successful preaching ministry. In fact, so successful was it that there were people that were begging Him, pleading with Him to remain with them. The Lord, though, made this statement, I must go to preach to other cities, for therefore was I sent. He knew that there were others in other places that also needed the message that He had to share. They needed to hear the soul-saving message of truth. Teaching was that important, and the Lord recognized that importance and thus proceeded onward in His journeys to carry out that message of teaching others. Doesn't that perhaps highlight in us the following thought? That we should appreciate the honor that goes with the teachers of the Bible. We should understand that that particular duty that's ours, teaching our children the Scriptures, teaching in a public way here at the church building, from the pulpit, in the classes at the back, it is a great honor to be a teacher of the Bible. There is no richer subject in all the world to teach than this one. Think about how all of eternity is impacted by its message. When we have the opportunity to carry out a teaching of someone about Jesus the only perfect one to ever live, the nature of the blood that He shed and the sacrifice that He made, the church that He established, proper worship that He authorized, the beauty and power of all eternity in heaven that He perhaps promises to those that are faithful. 
That's a marvelous lesson, isn't it? And it's a great set of ideas. And yet as Bible teachers, we have the prerogative, the beautiful privilege of carrying out that kind of teaching. The honor that goes with that teaching reminds us the authority is vested in it in the Word of God, isn't it? Didn't Paul, in fact, tell Titus in Titus 2.15, These things teach with all authority. When thus an individual is able to present the truth of God, it should not be with compromise or equivocation. It ought not be with a cloud of doubt and uncertainty that hovers over it. The God of heaven has in clear and simple terms given us many marvelous truths and the Bible teacher should with confidence and with assurance present them in such a way that many will be prompted to appreciate the need to respond positively. The Bible teacher has thus a tremendous eternal consequence, doesn't it? As you think about the Bible teacher, maybe that immediately begs the following observations as well. The responsibility that goes with it. With any obligation, with any responsibility from God, comes, of course, the responsibility to employ it correctly. We understand that in other realms of life. God allows us the opportunity to work and to have material things, but He also demands that we use them correctly. We use them rightly. We don't take advantage of them and we don't waste them. We're good stewards of what God has made available to us. It is still a premise of Scripture, isn't it? From 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, that the servant must be a good steward. As servants of God, then you and I, Realize we must be good stewards of what God has given us. Our money, our talents, our time, our energy, our capabilities, all of it. That, of course, goes true with a Bible teacher. To that particular person, and certainly again, we may think about first and foremost those gentlemen that would stand before us and teach the Bible, be it in our classes Certainly there are ladies that teach the younger classes, some of them in the back, and certainly they would fall under the character of the responsibility vested in them. But might we pause at this point to notice that there is a great responsibility to teaching. As you think about that, notice some of the ways that responsibility is highlighted. In Matthew 25, we find beginning in verse 14, a description of talents given to individuals. Now, those talents represented various denominations of money. But we notice the following interesting conclusion. That five-talent man put to use that which he had been given, and he was highly complimented for it. The two-talent man, again, put to use that which he was given. He was able to, in fact, not only present back the two, but two additional. He, too, was commended exceedingly highly. On that final occasion, there was a one-talent man. He had been given something. He chose not to use it. He chose, in fact, to conceal it, to hide it, to bury it, to present back only what he had been given. And at the time of reckoning, at the time of the appointment, if you will, he was called a wicked and slothful servant. He was told, you knew that I reaped where I had not sowed. You knew that I expected back the usability and the things that you had been given. He said, get thou out of my kingdom, you wicked and slothful servant. Matthew 25, 30. 
that reminds us that just in the expectation of the character then, think about the application to the Bible teacher today, to those in this audience who have been given by God the precious talent to teach, the capability of studiousness, the understanding of right division. You've been given, and so have I, the prerogative to teach it, and God expects us to use those talents in a way that glorifies Him, that brings honor and majesty to His cause. Are we using those talents in the way that God would have us do? As you give thought to the nature of this teaching, you'll notice in Luke 14, verse number 25, we certainly would sir, be quick to say this. Teaching doesn't come without some degree of cost. We'll say more about that as the lesson proceeds. But may we say that as you contemplate, and as I do the same, may we carefully count the cost, being willing always to, of course, make the investments as needed, so that we can teach and do so in the way that would bring glory and honor to the talents that God has given us and most importantly to His cause. When you speak about those responsibilities, no doubt some of them are worthy of more attention. Here are some of those responsibilities. May I again comment that as we think about the Bible teacher, we may think about those that stand before us in a public way. But keep in mind, all of us are expected to teach in one way or another. As we think about the way that that teaching takes place, it has to begin here. Let's speak for a moment about the nature of example because that's what Paul mentioned to Timothy in such a vital fashion. Think again that here was Paul, that apostle who was so experienced, who was so knowledgeable, who was in fact one who had seen the Lord on that road to Damascus, and yet here was Timothy, far younger than Paul it would seem. He was perhaps just beginning his work as a preacher of the gospel, and many years lay ahead of him. And yet, there were in that relationship some things that Paul told Timothy. Consider with me first this. Paul highlighted to Timothy the necessity and the importance that goes with example. It is something that all of us know very well today, isn't it? A teacher will be extremely ineffective if the audience perceives that his life does not match what he tries to teach. Isn't that true? That's true not only in religion, it's true in the other ways of life as well, isn't it? We appreciate so well that for a person to stand in front of a classroom and try to teach math when it's evident that his life does not match what he's trying to teach. If he doesn't know the mathematics, it'll become evident pretty quick. The students will lose interest. They'll have little respect for him or her, and the class will likely be virtually useless. Isn't it also similar to that in religion? If a congregation, an audience gets the sense that the speaker, the teacher, his life does not match the godliness which ought to be apparent in one teaching the Bible. They will have little appreciation for what he has to say. They will have little respect for him as an individual who tries to teach, and therefore the class will be very limited in its usefulness. Quite often, rather than thinking about the lesson, they'll be thinking about his failures thinking about his mistakes, thinking about the lacking in his life. It is no wonder then 
that that person who teaches the Word of God must not be careless in the ways that would put a stumbling block before his effectiveness as a teacher. That means that person shouldn't be careless in attendance. That person should not be careless in the other duties of godliness. That person shouldn't be careless in the other responsibilities given that are things observed by those around. That means the way one talks, the way that one dresses, the appearance that one gives. You can't hope to be an effective Bible teacher if others question the degree to which you yourself are godly. What was it that Paul told Timothy in this, in this light? Verse number 12, just four verses earlier than the one that was our Bible text this morning. Paul told Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy was to be a six-fold example to those that would have the privilege of listening to his presentation. But Paul was quick to highlight that the effectiveness, Timothy, of you will greatly be benefited by the nature of the example that you set. Notice some of the statements that he made. First, be thou an example of the believers in word. Timothy, what language do you use on a daily basis? When others listen to what you say and the way that you say it, are they reminded that you have a godly disposition? Are they reminded that you are a person who thinks on things that truly are in tune with the Word of God? In Ephesians 4.29, we learn on that occasion, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. It is a statement then that those who are teachers of the Bible certainly are reminded that their language, their speech, should be carefully guarded and closely watched. Secondly, he said in word, next is in conversation. That word means lifestyle, your manner of living. Timothy, what you do on a daily basis needs to have behind it the hallmarks of spirituality as delivered by the Word of God, and you need to live in a way so that others can appreciate day by day you practice what you preach. Bible teaching is not something that merely has obligations one day a week or two, is it? All of us as Christians, of course, should live holily, given to the things of truth, because there are others watching the example that we set. What about the language that I use? What about the places that we, that we visit? As you can see, this consideration of our conversation, doesn't it remind us of Matthew 5, 16? Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. To think about the nature of that example challenges us perhaps to move to the third one. Not only did he say in word and not only in conversation, then he said in charity. That means love. Timothy, as you set an example in love, that also should be something noteworthy. And it should also be something that is appreciated by those who observe and watch you as a Bible teacher. Timothy was to understand the nature of the love of God and strive to help others understand that marvelous matter as well. What about you and me? As we strive to set before others the example of the love of God 
as we strive to teach in the ways that God has authorized us to, to do? Are we also examples in love? We should be. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. The statement that Jesus made in Mark 12, verse 30. The understanding of that love maybe takes us to the fourth element. Not only was there the first three, there was also the understanding of spirit. Didn't Jesus say that we're to worship in spirit and in truth? John 4, 24. That has within it the thought of interest, enthusiasm, eagerness. Do others see in you and me a sense of excitement about the gospel? Or do they see someone that frowns, looks more like he or she is spiritually dead? If we have been baptized into Christ, we have been quickened. We have been made alive, Romans 6 verse 4. And as such, we then are ready to live for Christ, Galatians 2.20. Remember, the old man of sin was crucified. We are ready to live in newness of life, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Thus, do others see in us an excitement about Jesus? That person who teaches the Bible, especially in a public way, are you excited about the message? Is it something that you feel excited to share? It should be that way, shouldn't it? Quite often our youngsters come home and tell us about some of the teachers that they have at school. If that t teacher makes the class boring and uninteresting, it makes it a greater challenge for us to excite our youngsters about it. Should it not be so, at least in a parallel way, in the church, there should be no subject more exciting to us than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There should be no subject that rests upon our mind in such a joyful and delightful way as the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. The fifth element in that list, beyond that mention of spirit, he quickly also makes note of faith. The bedrock character of faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. When you and I thus teach the Scriptures, do others perceive in us a commitment to that faith in such a way that we're prepared to contend earnestly for it? Jude, verse 3. It certainly must be that way if we're to be effective. And finally, there is that mention of purity. It is true, isn't it, that one of the ways that challenges us so mightily is the failure in that matter of purity. A youngster, 15, 16, 17 years old perhaps, at that age has an interest in the things of godliness and perhaps begins a walk with the Lord, but with the pressures and the other kinds of enticements that often come with youth, there comes impurity. There comes decisions in times of weakness and as a result, there is the tarnishing of a character that may well hurt for all of the remainder of life. We must help our youngsters, and even we that are older, appreciate purity is vital if we are to be effective Christians. It's no wonder that we're told in Philippians 4.8 that we are to think on various things, and there are six of them listed. Think on things that are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of a good report. That's what we're to think on. And if we think on those things, then we will have a mind more often than not attuned to what God has said because He defines all of them. He defines what's true. 
He defines what's pure, what's lovely, what's honest, and what's good. May we then say that the Bible teacher has a great deal of things to consider in terms merely of his example. No wonder, perhaps, in verse 7 of this same chapter, 1 Timothy 4, Paul admonished Timothy to exercise thyself rather unto godliness. You and I then have some exercise to do. Exercising ourselves to godliness, and especially those that would be Bible teachers. Maybe we should give thought to yet another element that's involved in the effective Bible teacher. In fact, it's a critical element, isn't it? Preparation. It goes without saying that one cannot teach what one does not know. And isn't it a very critical part of what Paul told Timothy? Notice the language that appears in ways that I have stated here. 1 Timothy 4 is our key and our guide. We each again know very well how critical preparation is. That teacher in school, if he or she is unprepared, the students will soon detect it and quite likely will have far less respect for the attempt to teach. Isn't it so also for a Bible teacher? When a gentleman climbs into this pulpit or teaches one of the individuals in one of the classes, preparation is so essential. May we be quick to say, it is an insult to the student if a teacher is unprepared. But not only that, it's an insult to the cause of God. God's Word deserves better than that. His Word deserves preparation so that it can be dispensed with clearness, so that it can be dispensed with clarity, so that it can be dispensed with an element of urgency that is so becoming of it. It's the greatest subject and the greatest message of all. Notice what Paul told Timothy about preparation. Verse 13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Paul said, until I come, Timothy, you give attention, and he mentions three things, reading. Give yourself to a consideration. Study and prepare, and that takes on a highlighted thought when we look at the next verse. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, by the laying on, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Timothy was sufficiently blessed that he had had hands laid on him. He had even been an associate of Paul. That did not do away with his need to study. It didn't do away with his need to give attention to reading, to doctrine. He still needed to prepare himself so that he could in fact present the marvelous truths of God in the way that would be most effective and in the way that would be most effectual. Study is vital, isn't it? Preparation is essential. You'll notice in verse 15, he says, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting, thy progress may appear unto all. Timothy was told to meditate, to give the greatest diligence to. We can thus be thankful for those individuals who, in preparation, prepare themselves to help us as we think about the Word of God and strive to learn more of it. But we notice that a great responsibility is given to them to prepare accordingly. As you and I think about the nature of that preparation, may we not lose sight that in preparation the goal simply is this. God intended His Word to be understood. He didn't intend it to be abstract, 
He didn't intend it to be obtuse. He didn't intend it to be non-understandable. He gave it to us that we might learn it and implement it. And the Bible teacher should have that as a foremost goal, to conduct that class, that discussion in such a way that the hearers might be led to appreciate what God has said and put it into practice. That matter of Bible teaching thus perhaps leads us to also note this. I'm sure we've already highlighted it in passing, but its own separate thought is worthy to be made. What is the message that this person is to teach? We live in uncertain times in this regard, and it's a shame. There are so many occurrences and occasions in which an individual has his personal agenda. He has his thoughts, his particular considerations. They may be nothing more than tradition. They may be nothing more than his perceptions. But therein lies the problem. Timothy was told, verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. There was doctrine that Timothy was to preach and teach. There was doctrine to which he was to give his earnest consideration and notice it says as that verse closes, In doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There are precious souls listening, watching. That Bible teacher should appreciate that the message and the only one is not his personal feelings or thoughts. It still is told to us in Jeremiah 17, 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things. I might be deceived... I might be misled and therefore my personal opinions are absolutely worthless in terms of any kind of presentation of truth. It is the Word of God, though, that stands in ways like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. When we find in the truth, didn't Jesus say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And thus there must be a focused consideration from the Bible teacher on the message. That message that Timothy was to present and to teach was, of course, that great message of the Word of God. The thought about that message I've tried to highlight in some ways that I've exhibited in those scriptures listed above. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 we notice that text in Titus 2.15 where there Paul admonished Titus, again speak with all authority, but that speaking was to be done in a very profound and powerful way. Let no man despise thee. A Bible teacher is worthy of the honor accorded one who speaks the Word of God. May we diligently appreciate that thought and strive to understand the authority that is in that Word of God, the Bible teacher. Maybe one last passage from Ephesians 4.15. To speak the truth is the way Paul puts it. As you and I reflect, at least for a moment, on the Bible teacher, a number of ideas are enclosed in that very description. But there is one that remains. The notion of that person's attitude toward the occupation of the teacher and the nature of carrying out his duties. I put it in quotation marks because that's the direct quotation in the King James translation. 
The Bible teacher should give attendance to exhortation. That was verse 13 of 1 Timothy 4. Those who teach the Bible should have as their first and foremost observation the presentation of that truth in a way that exhorts the hearers. In other words, it instructs, it encourages, it strives to help them appreciate the nature of the truth of God, and it does so, not again with a personal agenda, but as a setting forth to exhort them to holy and godly living. Isn't that a beautiful thought and idea? That means that the Bible teacher thus should appreciate some other rather important characteristics. It's important not to be impatient. It's important not to be quick-tempered. One certainly shouldn't be uncaring and unconcerned because souls are at stake. The precious eternal souls of those who upon hearing might be led astray or aside due to those kind of characteristics. Is it any wonder that James 1, 19 and 20 still says, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It is a marvelous matter to appreciate the Bible teacher and the blessings that come to those who teach. I would suspect that one final thought might then be this. In Proverbs 15.1, we're reminded that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up. It is amazing, isn't it, how that by the way we answer a question, by the way that we present a response, we can in fact encourage one to either be more attuned to listening or to drive them further from the truth of God. As you think about this lesson and its conclusion, I would close with James 3, verse number 1, with a final reminder of how important and how much responsibility rests upon the Bible teacher. James on that occasion wrote, Be not many masters. And the word indicates teachers as it relates to the Word of God. Now James wasn't saying that don't have an earnestness and desire to teach. He was teaching a lesson about the importance of all these characteristics. As you teach, realize the responsibility that goes with it, the obligation that accompanies it, and the characteristic and blessing that also will be its. Be not many teachers. As you and I thus teach, may we realize a great deal of responsibility goes with it. It may be in the sound of my voice this morning. There's one or more who at this point in life has turned a deaf ear, if you please, to the teaching of the Word of God. You know that you need to respond. The God of heaven, in fact, has tugged at your heart on many occasions. But to this point, you have kept Him at distance. You haven't ever rendered initial obedience to the cause of Christ. This very day, realize that the greatest teacher of all died on the cross for you. He shed His blood, exemplifying the greatest mercy, the greatest grace, and the greatest love on your behalf. Don't deny Him. Don't disrespect Him. Why not come to Him today? The plan of salvation involves your believing that He is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His great name as the, the anointed Messiah, the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance to you in that today, what a marvelous and delightful change in life for you it would be. If you have become a member of the body of Christ at some former day in life, but to this point, 
you have reached a point where you are not faithful any longer. Perhaps you in attendance, in other aspects of life, have not set an example of godliness. And at this point, you really cannot effectively teach Christ to anyone else because your life is not in proper order. Why not put it in order today? The Lord is the only one that can do that. Our elders nor I can do that. No human can do it. Only God can forgive sins through the blood of His Son. If today we could be of assistance in praying on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that. We would merely invite you to let us know in the way that we can assist and pray specifically for you. If either of these matters will be the need of your life today, will you not let that be known? If you would, while together we stand and sing the selected song.